How we doing, Hume? Let's go. Man, that guy is on too many Red Bulls. I love it. I love it. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. While you turn there, man, I am just so stoked to be with you guys this weekend. A little bit about me. Like was said, my name is Matt. Uh, I'm a campus pastor at a church in Fresno, California called The Well. Been there for about three and two and a half years. But before that, uh, I was a camp director here at Hume Lake. So I directed a camp called Wildwood, which is Hume Lake's discipleship camp for high school students. But crazy, my first ever camp experience, my first ever camp experience as a kid was right here. It was the summer of my fifth grade year before Hume had ever bought this property, uh, and I was like a little short, no-nothing kid out on the lawn. There was like a picture with me wearing a hat with spikes on it. I had a lot of issues as a fifth grader. Uh, but that was a time in my life where I can look back and go, that summer, God began to do something in my life. Now, I didn't embrace the gospel until I was 19, but that summer of fifth grade, God began to do an epic work in my life. And I would contend that God has a plan for each and every one of you this weekend, that you didn't come up here on accident, that God has each and every one of you sitting in this chapel on purpose and for a purpose. And I'm so excited that we together get to unpack the beauty and the challenge of what does it mean, as the video talked about, to find what is this life all about? Are we just chasing after things that will never satisfy, or are we indeed going after the one thing, the one person, the only God who can really give meaning and purpose to your and my life. And so I'm so excited to unpack this weekend with you. A couple things. You'll see me walking around camp. Come say hi. I would love to get to know each and every one of you. My wife is also with me, as well as my two daughters, Selah, who's five, and Sunday, who is three. So come say hi to our daughters. They would love to hang out with you. Sunday, you, I mean, Selah, you'll probably find her like reading a book in the snow. And then Sunday's going to be running around trying to probably light something on fire. So if you could just help me, that would be great. Well, man, as we dive into our first time together, would you just open up your hands and pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we come before you and we thank you for who you are. God, I thank you for this time as we unpack the question in Ecclesiastes, the question that the video posts, that this theme unpacks, what is the true meaning of life? Is it found in the things we can chase after in the timeline from birth to death, or is it something greater? Father, I pray God, if there's anything that any of these students brought up that would distract them from interacting with you this weekend, God, I pray that you'd strip it away. Father, I pray now for the next couple moments this evening, God, may we direct our full and utter attention on who you are. God, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So before we dive into the text of Ecclesiastes, a couple things we should know about the book. So Ecclesiastes was written by a guy named Solomon who ruled over Israel about the time he wrote this, about 900 B.C., 
Now, this is towards the end of Solomon's life. And this is kind of his epic kind of last word. He's experienced the fullness of life, power, he had it, riches, he had it, influence, he had it tenfold times the richest person you can think of today. And he's coming to the table, kind of his last words, this kind of sage Yoda-like man writing down what he has grasped at the full meaning of life. But why would he be credible? Again, because he has everything you could ever imagine. The richest person on the world today, he trumps him tenfold. But not only that, Solomon was the wisest person to ever walk the planet in his day. For example, he wrote the whole book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is an entire book that walks through the entire wisdom of man. He writes Song of Solomon, an entire book on the wisdom of what it looks like to walk in relationship. And then he writes Ecclesiastes, kind of his magnum opus of what it looks like to walk in this life and get meaning out of life. Now, I'm curious, how many of you here want to live a purposeful and meaningful life? I hope everyone raises their hand. And he's going to etch us through what does that mean and the reason why he's so credible is because God himself gifted Solomon the gift of wisdom. In 1 Kings chapter 3, God shows up to the scene, goes up to Solomon, and Solomon has been seen by God, serving him and loving him. And so God shows up and goes, Solomon, check this. You can ask for anything you want, and I'll give it to you. Talk about the most epic blank check in history. I'll give you anything you ask for. Solomon sits, ponders for a second, and clicks. God, I want all the wisdom and discernment. Because he became king at the age of 14, realizing he didn't have the wisdom and knowledge to run an entire nation. Nevertheless, the nation of God's chosen people, he asks, can I have wisdom and discernment? And God says, because you've asked in such wisdom, I'm going to give you wisdom and discernment that's never been seen on the face of the earth. He was the quintessential, greatest of all time, goat of his time in terms of wisdom. And so through his writing and his inspired by God to write it, we're going to sift through some of the most important questions you and I instinctively will ask in our lifetime. The questions of who is God? Who am I? And why do I exist? And what is the good life and how do I live it out? And so tonight, we're going to embark on answering that first question. Who is God? Or as Adam talked about in the video, who is that corner piece? Who's the picture on the box that allows all things in life to be able to become clear? So we're going to answer the question according to Ecclesiastes, who is God? And we're going to see in our time together that he is creator, all-powerful, almighty, holy creator. And because he creates, he alone can give purpose and meaning to creation. We're going to see that God alone is the source of all wisdom and knowledge. And then finally, we're going to have to wrestle with what is our response to those realities. And that response, the only appropriate response, is to fear him. So let's understand what it means that God alone gives purpose 
to creation. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this. The words of the preacher, that's Solomon talking about himself, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And then he opens his book with one of the most discouraging lines. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Well, that's a Debbie Downer if I've ever seen one. Vanity in this book is said over 35 times in 29 verses. And to unpack what it means, it literally means it's meaningless. All is meaningless. It's this picture of water vapor where it's there for a minute, you're boiling water, and you see it come up, and just as quickly as you saw it, it's gone. It can't be grasped at. It can't be contained. It can't be achieved like the mirage illustration that you heard in the video. But what specifically is he calling meaningless? Is he just being discouraging for discouraging sake? I contend no. What is he saying is meaningless? Let's keep reading. It says this. What does, gain, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Under the sun meaning the things you can accomplish in this life from birth to death that happen in your every single day. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. In this verse, he's trying to get across that anything we try to put our ultimate hope and identity in that is a created thing in our world today, it's going to leave us left wanting. It's never going to satisfy. It's never going to fulfill. It's never going to bring the ultimate result we're looking for, which is meaning and purpose and identity in this life. That in this life, anything under the sun, we will never be able to find fullness of life, fullness of joy, fullness of purpose. I remember even in my story, I was like, man, I can't wait to get married because when I get married, then I will experience the fullness of life. And don't get me wrong, I love my wife. But I remember even after just a few years, I realized, okay, she doesn't complete me. And if I put my full weight of my life in her, I would only be left disappointed in her, vice versa. That there's only one thing that gives life and life abundantly, and you can't find it under the sun. Our lives are numbered. Little illustration, something weird about me. How many of you like walking through old cemeteries? Such a dark turn. You're like, get this guy off stage. It's a whack job. But so back a couple years ago, me and my wife got to go to Boston, Massachusetts. And I'm a big history nut. I just love history. I think it's the best thing ever. And so we got to go to Boston, and we walked this trail that Paul Revere did. And we get to this old cemetery. And I was like, that's all I want to do is walk through this. And my three-year-old's like, Dad, this is weird. I was like, just come with me. And so we're walking through this cemetery, and I realize that none of the names of, on these stones still exist. They've all gone and passed. Well, man, I have a big man crush on somebody in history. His name's Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> big man crush, big man crush. And so we got to, then a couple years later, we get to go to New York. And I was like, I heard Alexander Hamilton is in New York. I got to meet this guy. And so we look at him, a suite. He's hanging out at Trinity Church. Let's go to Trinity Church and go talk to Alex. Pull up to Trinity Church. I'm so stoked. He's not there. Where is he? He's six feet underground. 
He's dead. He's gone. And don't get me wrong, he played an important role in human history, but nothing under the sun could save him from certain death. That anything that you and I chase in this life under the sun will never give us full meaning. Because friends, you and I in this life don't have the power to define the meaning of life for ourselves. We are physically bound to a point in time. We cannot perceive what's going to happen tomorrow. We had no control of what happened today. We are not in control of what's in front of us. And we don't have the ultimate authority or power to project ultimate meaning or identity over anything. Isaiah 45, 9 paints this beautiful picture of a potter. And he has clay in his hands as he's molding it. And it says, can the, potter, can the clay say to the potter who he is? What are you making? But it's all in the potter's hands. The creator gets to determine the purpose of all things. Friends, look at me. Only God, only God can hold and craft your life and my life in his hands. And because he is the ultimate creator, that he's put every hair on your head, He knows you by name. He knows your first day and your last day. And only he, the author of life, can proclaim the purpose of life. He created space and time. And only we get to answer to him and him alone. We don't get to define meaning for ourselves. We are finite. We have an end date. But God is eternal. And only he gets to define the meaning of life. And then we continue in verse 5 through 7, and we see the author not only is we don't have the ability to claim the meaning of life for ourselves or we to define it. He says nothing in creation can define it. Look at verse 5 through 7. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes to the north, and around and around goes the wind. It's this picture of monotony. It happens every day like clockwork. And on circuits, the wind returns and streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again. Solomon pointing out that like the sun setting again and again and again and a river flowing and that ocean is never full points to again this monotonous rhythm of life. That nothing in this world will satisfy. Like a river going to the ocean, the ocean will never be filled. It will be constantly dependent on the river to fill it, but it will never be satisfied. Nothing in creation, even though it's beautiful, will never be able to satisfy you, period. Because, friends, the point of creation wasn't to satisfy. The point of creation was to point you to the only one who could. When you see the snow on the mountains, when you're walking in the beauty of the grandeur of these trees, They were never meant to fill you from top to bottom. They were meant to point you to the only one who could, the incredible creator of it. Psalm 19, 1 through 6 puts it this way. The heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. I would encourage you this weekend at some point 
maybe tonight or tomorrow night, just go with your cabin to a dark spot and turn off your flashlights and look up. And be blown away that the God of the universe breathed those stars into the sky and knows everyone by name. And look at me, he put them on purpose. To not to try to find meaning in them, but to point to him, the author, the only one you can find meaning in. In Isaiah, I love this verse, in Isaiah, it says that God holds the expanse of the waters of the world in his hand. So I ask you this question tonight, what is your view of God? Who do you say God is? Because our view of God is never going to be big enough. Who is God? He's the all-powerful, almighty, holding creation in his hand, molding it according to his purpose, not bound by space and time. And because he is creator, he alone can give purpose to it. No one looked at the mountainscape or creation and thought themselves a big deal. But it points us to the biggest deal that's ever existed from eternity's past and future. God, and he is God and we are not. We don't get to determine the purpose of why we were created. Only the creator gets to do that. So not only is our life but a vapor, not only can we not find meaning in creation, but we can't find it in human achievement. I'm so happy because I was never a straight A student. That was never me. But we don't find it in human achievement, in success. How many of you have ever built a sandcastle? Okay, let's go childhood, punk rock. So the thing about it is I like nerd over sandcastles. So the biggest sandcastle ever built in the world was July of 2021. It was built in Denmark. I don't know why you would build a sandcastle in Denmark. It was very tropical to me, but they were bored. So they build the biggest sandcastle ever. It was over, let me get this straight, it was, took over four months, it was 5,000 tons of sand, and was 65 feet high. Crazy. It took 30 of the best architects in the world to build it. And what's so weird is they modeled it after events during COVID. So weird. I don't know who signed off on that. I don't want to remember 2020, right? Four months, 5,000 tons of sand, 30 of the best architects in the world. And it sat there for about five months. And then the winter came. And it rained. And it washed it all away. Think of how much time and years were spent planning for that. The amount of sand they robbed from your local beach. The amount of time that went into this, and just like that, gone. And I think for some of us, we're building our lives in the same way. Chasing after achievement, chasing after popularity, chasing after influence, fill in the blank, chasing after success, hoping that that will satisfy, but like a sandcastle, it's only a matter of time before the waves come in and wash it all away. Now, don't get me wrong. Is God pleased when you do things excellently? Yes. Does God love creativity? Yes, because he's the best creative in the entire eternity. 
God loves your creativity. He loves how smart you are. He's wired you that way. But how often we make the mistake of worshiping creation over creator, thinking our success will satisfy us, thinking our popularity will satisfy us, thinking if we get that job or we get that marriage or if we get that paycheck or if we get those many likes or we get those many views, that will satisfy us. Then what happens? You want more. You want more. Like a sandcastle, it all comes crashing down. There's only one thing that satisfies, that thing being God himself. For he alone is beginning and end, alpha and omega, the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't get washed away by the waves. He made the waves. So who is God? He's all-powerful. A $10 Christian word for that is omnipotent. He creates and sustains all things. Nothing is out of his control. He holds the expanse of the waters in his hands. A key aspect to who God is, is he's perfectly holy. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Said three times for emphasis that he was perfectly holy. In him there is no blemish. Look at me. God is not a better version of you. He's not the best version of somebody you know. He's altogether other. No blemish. No sin can be found in him. He is altogether outside. This is why if you read Isaiah chapter 6, maybe read it tonight, to expand your view of God. The prophet Isaiah gets to walk before the presence of God, and Isaiah stops and he goes, who am I to stand in the presence of a holy God, for I'm a man of unclean lips. He realizes that God is altogether other, altogether holy, And in that moment, he was unfit to even be standing in God's presence. But with that, he is endlessly loving. Maybe for some of you this weekend, you need to hear that God loves you. That he sees you. That he knows the laundry list of things you have sold out for that are lesser things. And he still initiates every moment of every day a loving relationship with you. So let's can the lie tonight that you're not too broken for God to see and for God to love. He loves you. And we see this proof in day seven of creation. He creates all of creation, then on day six, what does he do? He creates humanity. What's the first thing God does with humanity? He walks with them in the garden. He dwells with them. He spends time with them. Look at me. God is holy. He's perfect. But God is love. He loves you. You're going to find the meaning of your life in the palms of that love. Holy. He is powerful. He is loving. So we see that this God, who is all these things, alone gives purpose to creation, can alone give meaning and purpose to you and me. But not only does he give purpose to all of creation, that he alone is also the source of all true wisdom and all true knowledge. So our meaning, all creation's meaning is never going to be found at the hands of humanity or our works or our achievements or even earthly knowledge or wisdom. 
Because we look at earthly knowledge and wisdom, how often is that fleeting? If I hear another person say, live your truth, I swear. What if my truth says your truth is a lie? Is it still true? How fleeting is that? But God, we see, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His word can be taken as true. So we see this in verses 12 through 15. Look at your Bibles. It says this. I, the preacher, have been king over Jerusalem. And then in verse 13, I have applied my heart to seek and search out wisdom by all that is done under heaven. And it is an unhappy business. It was like, I have tried to attain all the knowledge in the world, and it is painful. It is not fun. Like, for those of you who in here who like math, that is a gift from God. It was never fun for me. Like, one of my friends who works for me is like, I'm majoring in math. I'm like, you're insane. Sorry to pump on my math people. But it's an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. What is he trying to say? That we can know all that there is about life. And still have zero control of it. You could see, how many of you passed your driver's test? Terrifying. Just kidding. Actually, it was terrifying when I passed. I failed twice. Uh, and then I tried to drive in the snow with no chain. Uh, but you could know, you could read the, you could memorize the entire driver's handbook, cover to cover. Red lights, medians, the whole nine, what to do when the, the, fla- like the light's just flashing, which is the worst, by the way. Three-way stops because of the fall, right? Like, but you could know all that there is about driving, and you have no control of the cars around you on the road. You have no control of if you could get hit by a car and have a catastrophic accident. When I was a freshman in high school, me and my buddy Ash and my brother, we went to go purchase tickets to go watch Iron Man. It had just came out, 2007. And we're riding back. We bought tickets for it, and, but we bought, like, early tickets because we were weird. And we're like, let's go watch the Boston Laker playoff game. Like, that's how old this was. And so we are driving to my friend Ash's house. Ash has just got his license. And he's like, hey, check this. And he starts going 95 on the freeway. He gets right. Now, I know all the traffic laws, and I know 95 is not safe. And he gets right up behind a truck, quickly changes lanes, loses control of the car, and we do a three-flip off the freeway. I could tell you everything about driving. I could tell you that 95 isn't safe. I could tell you to use turn signals, and I had zero control as that car headed off the road. We can have all the knowledge, but still have zero control over life. Verse 14, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. In other words, knowledge under the sun is always changing and adapting. Like trying to stay relevant is just a dog trying to chase its tail. It'll never get there. Like I think of like when you, hope maybe some of you guys are blessed with having kids. I remember me and my wife, when we had our first Selah, they're like, don't let your children sleep on their back. And I was like, okay, we're not going to let them sleep on their back. Then like a year later, they're like, don't do that. They'll suffocate. Put them on their stomach. Like what is going on? Like, for a whole year, I guess I was abusing my kid because I wasn't putting them to sleep right. And then, like, the next, no, you got to sleep on their side. It just always changed. And just like with knowledge, it always is fleeting under the sun. It always changes. Relevancy is an always moving target. Verse 15, what is crooked cannot be made straight. 
and what is lacking cannot be counted. In other words, you can have all the wisdom and all the knowledge on a problem of life and still not be able to fully solve it. Like I remember two summers ago, me and a couple friends, we got to go to Nicaragua and we sat around a round table for three hours and debated how do we stop world hunger? And we had so many different ideas and solutions and we had to come up with the response, the unfortunate response that it will always exist, this side of heaven, until Jesus comes back. And I can try and try and try, which doesn't mean we shouldn't. By all means, we're called to. But I'll never be able to fully solve it this side of heaven because of sin. Then in verse 16 and 17, it says this, I said in my heart, I've acquired great wisdom surpassing all who were over Jerusalem. Talk about a flex. But my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to no wisdom and to no madness and folly, and I perceived this also is striving after the wind. For much wisdom is much vexation, and he who increases in knowledge increases in sorrow. No matter how much wisdom you have, no matter how much knowledge you accumulate, it will never fully satisfy you because there will always be something else left to know. So what are we to do then? What are we to do if no wisdom under the sun produces identity and meaning? If no toil or achievement produces meaning, if not even myself or yourself can define meaning, what are we to do? Friends, we pursue and we chase after with our thoughts and our deeds and our attitude the true author of unwavering wisdom being God himself. He holds every problem, every question, every doubt, every hardship, everything unknown in his hand. And this brings us to our final point and where we're going to land the plane tonight. With a God this holy, with a God this powerful, with things under the sun not providing meaning, purpose, and identity, what is our appropriate response to God? The only response is to fear him and him alone. This God who gives eternal purpose and order and meaning to creation. The one who formed you in your mother's womb. The one who created the trees, the snow, the mountains, and the stars. Our response to this God who literally breathes stars is fear. See, in Proverbs 1.7, it says this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Again, in Proverbs 9, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Again, in Psalm 111, 10, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and those who practice it have good understanding. This terminology of fear the Lord in your Bible is said repeatedly 317 times on a purpose. To get us to understand that he is God and we are not. But what does this fear look like? What does it mean? It's not this cowering fear of a vengeful God who's out to get you. 
not a shaking in our boots. The fear of God is the realization of his unchanging power and justice. The realization that he is altogether other, altogether holy. Again, he isn't a better version of you. He is God. He's altogether blameless. In him is perfect power. In him is perfect justice and peace. And so our response is fear, utter awe. We all have awe of something. We all fear something. We all worship something. Can I be honest with you for a minute? One thing I deeply struggle with is the fear of man. I put my hope and I put my identity and I put meaning in people's opinions of me. You know how fleeting that is? Someone could tell me after this message, Matt, you did a great job, and someone who listened to it could come up to me and go, that was terrible. What do I do with that? And I end up putting so much of my identity in someone's opinion, and it's fleeting. When we say we fear something, ultimately that is what we're putting our hope and identity and purpose in. For some of us, we fear social media. We put our hope and identity and purpose in the likes we get. For some of us, same with me, you fear people's opinions of you. For some of you, you fear achievement. I am what I do. Or maybe you fear shame. I am what I've done. And you begin to show utter awe and reverence and put your life in the hands of something that is fleeting. When we fear God, we're saying, God, you alone give me purpose. You alone give me identity. You are the author of creation. I am not. You define what is true. I do not. You are wise. I need you. Isaiah 6, oh, I'm unworthy to stand before your presence. We all came up this hill, me included, with things fighting for that area of our life. Things trying to tussle for the throne of your heart. Will you choose to fear God? Put him above all else. That he alone is God. He alone is worthy. He alone is creator. As we close, a few questions to ponder. What is your view of God? Talk about it. And I would encourage you in your cabin times, be honest. Be honest. Don't waste your time here for the next three nights. Be honest. If you don't think he's a big deal, be honest about it. Because it's in that place of honesty where God will begin to work in you. What is your view of God? Second, what do you fear? What do you worship? What is dictating your life? I went first. I struggled deeply with the fear of man and people's opinions. I hope I'm not the only one in this room. What would it look like for you in your cabin time to be honest about the thing that's on the throne of your life that's constantly leaving you thirsty, that's constantly leaving you unsatisfied, that is dominating your thoughts and actions? What are you fearing? What is your identity in? Because friends, we realize it's God alone that gives purpose to creation. It's God alone who has all true wisdom and true knowledge. And it's only in God that we should fear and put our trust in. Amen? Pray with me. Heavenly Father, God, you're good. Lord, I'm thankful for your word. I'm thankful for who you are. God, I just pray that this weekend, for my friends here and for myself, God, that we would learn to fear you. God, would you broaden our view of you? Would you break our small view of you? 
God, may we leave this place on Monday more in love with you than when we got here. God, we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.